Your source for community. Muskoka-made talk shows are on Muskoka Magazine. The Bay, 88.7. Hey, this is Dr. Shervin. Muskoka Magazine is brought to you by Dairy Lane Dental. Keeping Muskoka smiling for over 30 years. Please visit DairyLaneDental.com. This is Boyer's Modern History of Muskoka with your host, Patrick Boyer. The 1920s began a century ago, and, frankly, it's impossible to imagine that decade being so utterly transformative for Canadians without the Americans in the picture. Prohibition of alcohol in each country produced organized crime and millionaire criminals on both sides of the Canada-U.S. border. Rapid advances in automobile design and lower-cost manufacturing of American cars in Canada saw motor touring become an energizing pastime for millions of newly liberated people across the continent. Afro-American jazz musicians had introduced their entirely different spasm music before the Great War, but by 1919, it was entering the mainstream with a Canadian following, and became another Roaring Twenties feature. Hollywood's once silent moving pictures now had sound and, called speakies, became increasingly popular in Canadian cinemas, as did their new generation of 1920s movie stars. <laughs> Dancing the Charleston became as Canadian a thing as it was American. Immensely popular American radio programs, like Amos and Andy, broadcast over network radio, captivated audiences in Canada and the U.S. simultaneously. Art Deco introduced wonderful eye-pleasing design for buildings, furniture, vehicles, clothing, jewelry, cinemas, trains, ocean liners, airplanes, even everyday appliances from radios to vacuum cleaners. Art Deco's sleek, linear, often rectangular geometric forms were frequently derived from the shapes of machine parts and appealingly arranged and broken up by curved ornamental elements. Art Deco, like jazz, had also debuted before the war in France, but it was jointly in the United States and Canada during the 1920s that this emblematic style for modernity in the 20th century really took off. <laughs> and what about 1920s women in the US, Canada, and Europe, so famously known as flappers? American women 
picking up social and cultural influences for rebellion and renewal from France, became inspirational leaders for Canadian gals in the flapper phenomenon too, including all the special lingo that was so unique to these bold, beautiful, and bouncing women. Terms still in use today, from mad money to gold digger and dozens and dozens more. However, we must not look back and imagine this cross-border communication just automatically happened. A couple necessary conditions first had to align. Canada needed to shift from being in orbit around Great Britain into much closer rotation with the United States. Second, a major rupture in that that the First World War caused in Canadian-U.S. relations generally, typified by the chill between Americans and Muskokans, also had to be overcome. So let's examine this uh, American-Canadian connection more closely. Because as an essential link with social, political, economic, even cultural dimensions, it has been long evolving. This complex relationship between two North American countries, so vastly different, yet so utterly alike, stretches back long before the Great War disrupted things. The United States began with 13 of Britain's North American colonies breaking from the English crown to become an independent republic, leaving Canada to slowly emerge from the scattered remnants of British North America as a dependent colony still within a monarchical empire. Clearly, two fundamentally different countries. On top of that, the territory that became Ontario only got its first settler population in significant numbers when refugees from that American War of Independence fled over the border in the late 1700s. Exiles who remained loyal to the British Crown. They were called United Empire Loyalists. Like refugees leaving war-torn Ukraine today, they carried with them intense hatred of those who'd killed members of their families, burned their homes, and seized their farms during years of warfare. The result was that, from the outset, Ontario's political culture had zealous anti-American passions at its core. This fear of and hostility to Americans was rekindled when military forces from the United States invaded Canada in 1812. That war dragged on for three years, ending with Canada generally still intact and the anti-American feelings not only intact, but stronger than ever. Real threats of other invasions continued into the 1860s. So fear that Americans would make Canadian territory part of the USA was never far below the surface. But by the 1870s, the United States shifted 
from its idea of taking over Canada by armed warfare. Instead, conquest could be achieved by economic means, cultural extension, <laughs> and a comfort blanket of good old American friendliness. From 1875, when passenger trains began running north to Gravenhurst, sportsmen from the U.S. began to arrive in this district. They then boarded steamships, which carried them to spots around Lakes Muskoka, Russell, and Joseph. As more hunters and fishermen came, they paid Muskoka farmers to develop lodge-like accommodations, who were only too happy to do so. From these origins, Muskoka's unexpected and unplanned vacation economy was born. Within a decade, these converted farmhouses, often still just bearing the homesteader's own name, like Robinson House, Hutton House, Fife House, Peyton House, Thorl House, you get the idea, <laughs> the list is extensive were all receiving long-staying affluent guests from the United States. One of these hunting lodges in particular left no doubt about what was happening. The American house on Lake Muskoka had been so named because the two women who owned and operated it specifically, indeed exclusively, catered to American sportsmen. On arrival, they knew they were welcome as they caught a glimpse of the star-spangled banner waving in the breeze. Vacationers wanting these outdoors sporting adventures came from southern Ontario, to be sure. But a majority of guests at many resorts hailed from the northern United States. Within the next decade, two important further steps were taken the hunting lodges began to look less backwoods rustic and more urban sophisticated as Muskokans came to appreciate the tastes and expectations of contemporary city folk. Second, a significant number of Americans were no longer just staying at summer resorts, but building their own vacation estates at prime locations around Muskoka's lakes. Now, dozens of, dozens of books about Muskoka history refer to what I've just described about Americans showing up and becoming a major social and economic presence in, in the district. However, they do not ask why. Why would Americans, whose own country offered many wilderness settings for escape, come to Muskoka? There were several reasons. First, the idea had taken hold at senior levels in the United States business and political communities that American interests could be more readily exploited north of the border without legally integrating Canada into their country. Second, for wealthy families on the U.S. side of the Great Lakes, you know, in New York, Pennsylvania, Ohio, and Michigan, even Indiana, Illinois, Wisconsin, and Minnesota, the terrain and culture just north of these lakes in Ontario was more welcoming and familiar 
than places further afield in their own vast country. Plus, in places like Muskoka, you could benefit from wilderness Canadian Shield landscape, pleasing scenery with great fishing and good hunting. The maps of Muskoka in 1900 still featured fishing rods, canoes, rifles, and sportsmen's motifs. And now with the ease of steam age travel by trains and ships, all this was closely convenient. There were more reasons. The human desire to escape one's familiar setting made going to a foreign country appealing in a slightly exotic way, especially if encountering only nominal differences. Muskoka offered a comfortably unique bargain for Americans, breaking away to a freedom in a different locale that was not perplexing, nor even very foreign. Another reason is that Muskoka was being promoted in magazines and by the railway companies and by the medical community for its natural curative powers. The Muskoka cure, which many doctors actually prescribed, was especially magnetic if the city you were escaping was a polluted, heavy industry town overcast in summer heat and smog. One of those was Cleveland, whose steel mill Ohio owners built their magnificent summer estate retreats by Bo Morris on Lake Muskoka, a place soon dubbed Millionaire's Row. Even another reason is that Americans actually felt welcome, certainly more than in most foreign countries they traveled. Muskokans readily flew their flag. A lot of locals, indeed many Canadians, had slipped into the practice of flying the American flag, although Americans themselves never seemed to need any help in that department. Those doing so evidently thought it a benign way of saying welcome. Because the district's new economy depended on guests from the neighboring republic, in normal times, the Skulkins generally kept their true feelings under wraps for the greater good of commerce. The First World War was not a normal time. After a short break, we'll look at how the First World War derailed this American connection in Muskoka and what that portended for the 1920s. Buy Muskoka for Muskoka, your collection of Muskoka-based talk shows. Muskoka Magazine, The Bay, 88.7. I'm Dr. Shervin from Dairy Lane Dental, and you're listening to Muskoka Magazine. This is Boyer's Modern History of Muskoka with your host, Patrick Boyer. Welcome back. I'm Patrick Boyer. All right. We now understand how rooted many Americans had become in Muskoka as their seasonal northern Mecca by the time the First World War broke out.
At their Muskoka places that summer of 1914, when war clouds loomed over Europe, they were mystified and even debated with locals about why Canadians would join a European war having nothing to do with their North American country. As the war continued, the United States stayed out of it and profited selling needed assets to both sides while Canadians, including Muskogan, sacrificed in every way. That latent undercurrent of anti-American sentiment resurfaced. Now, Muskokans had come to depend economically on Americans. For years, in the lobbies of most Muskoka resort hotels, from Lake Rossell's Monteith House to the Summit House and a hundred more, prominently displaying large British Union Jacks and American Stars and Stripes near the reception desk. But because the U.S. remained profitably absent from Great War battles, British-minded Canadians became enraged by this symbolic American presence in their district, in the district here. The United States was looking out for its own financial interests by staying out of the war to profit from it. Which side, many demanded, were they really on? At Summit House, the front office became scene of a testy encounter when Dr. F.J. Kappen, a leading Toronto dentist and longtime patron, inflamed seeing the U.S. flag displayed alongside the British flag, accosted Alex Fraser, the hotel's operator. Kappen demanded the Yankee banner be removed immediately. Because the United States had not joined the war, it could no longer be seen as an ally. Americans were actively cooperating in a number of ways with Canada's enemy, their factories humming with German war contracts. German Americans were freely leaving the United States, often amidst jubilant public send-offs reported in Canadian newspapers, to fight for their fatherland. Patriot Kappen, seeing the stars and stripes still present as if nothing had changed, deemed it a taunting affront. Now that there was a war on, said Brendan O'Brien, witness to this emotional wartime transition around Lake Grosso, quote, a new breed of patriots was beginning to emerge in Canada who considered it necessary and proper to publicly abuse Americans for shirking their duty to enter the war against the central powers in Europe. In such an unpleasant anti-American atmosphere, American tourists began to feel they were no longer welcome. Close quote. So as the war continued, they stayed in their own country and generally prospered, selling armaments to all sides. Business in Canada generally became unsettled by the war, and in Muskoka, the departure of men to fight overseas depleted the ranks of those normally operating equipment and services for summertime vacationers. In 1915, Muskoka resorts sagged with a very poor season. Despite the United States remaining out of the war, German torpedoing of the Lusitania that spring, which killed many prominent Americans, badly rattled the American people. 
Many more canceled their standing reservations. Those who did come cut short their Muskoka vacations, finding anti-Americanism no longer beneath the surface. As the war progressed, Muskoka's all-important vacation economy tanked. Several resorts did not even open. Those that did offered reduced services, announcing that as a patriotic gesture, there'd be no golf this season. <laughs> the reality was there just weren't enough locals to keep everything running, including idle indulgences like golf courses. And besides, each year there were fewer big spending Americans around to run things for. Only when it became a financial necessity as Wall Street bankers forced American President Woodrow Wilson to understand, did the United States join battle in 1917, now on the same side as Canadians. The war ended late in 1918, after four flat years for Muskoka's vacation economy. But the next summer was just as bleak because a global pandemic the deadly Spanish flu kept people at home. It was only as the 1920s advanced that incrementally Americans began returning. The star-spangled banner would yet fly over Muskoka. The inevitability of their North American links pre prevailed in bringing Canada and the United States together again. In fact, as often happens after a healthy spat, closer than ever. Not only was vehicle manufacturing by American companies in Ontario playing a huge role in the deeper convergence of the two countries' economies and cultures, as described in January's broadcast about the 1920s automobile revolution, as well, during the 1920s, as Canada moved from Britain's orbit to entwine with the United States, this merging of enterprises was also engineered in the pulp and paper industry, the production of electrical power, and many branch plant forms of manufacturing. In tandem, during those post-war years, summer resort owners in Muskoka upgraded their facilities and extended their services to restore their attractiveness to vacationers, especially those from the United States. They now understood from the wartime blight were essential to profitability, even to survival. In 1922, Huntsville's Charles Orlando Shaw even opened with Big One Inn on Lake Abays the largest summer resort hotel in the British Empire. Through the Roaring Twenties and, in, and right up into the 1950s, Big Win Inn's guest register recorded year after year a majority of its prestigious guests from the United States. And that, as we'll see in future programs about the Roaring Twenties, gave already far-famed Muskoka extended prominence on the social map of North America. Yes, and in Muskoka, that star-spangled banner yet flies. Music
Thank you for listening. Producer for Boyer's Modern History of Muskoka is Jacob Krieger. I'm Patrick Boyer. Thank you.